1 Corinthians chapter 3, here we go. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. For neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants, the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Good morning, everybody. Um, uh, just to uh, reintroduce myself, if you haven't met me before, my name is Micah, or Mike, um, and yeah, as much as it's a privilege to be here uh, this morning, I, th- I think you know there are some there are some weeks where you feel particular weakness uh, coming coming to uh, coming to uh, speak or preach and to bring God's word. Uh, t- this morning is one of those. So I'm going to do what this passage says is the wise thing to do, and I'm going to tr- entrust myself to God. We're going to pray <laughs> before we start, and um, and then we'll begin. 
Father, thank you that you uh, show up in our weakness um, and that you are powerful enough that you do not need us, you do not need me. Um, and we pray this morning that as your word is heard, as, um, as, as it is um, held out, that um, Jesus would be precious to all of us um, and uh, we would see our, our great and high calling as his people. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so some of you who might have been here uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, might remember Johnny Richards kind of doing this uh, little visualization exercise um, to help you maybe imagine the perfect church. Uh, I don't know if you, any of you remember doing that or what it looked like. I'm, I'm going to return to that idea for just a moment. Um, but this time I'm going to ask you not to imagine the perfect church. I'm going to ask you to imagine the perfect church leader. Uh, if you find it helpful, you can feel free to close your eyes just for a moment and just consider what, might, what it might be that makes that leader so effective, so impactful. Uh, what are the priorities that they have that are so valuable? What gifts do they have? How do they use them? Are they, are they cultural insiders or are they kind of countercultural in some way? Uh, what was their career that they were thriving in before they went into ministry? What skills do those two things share? Okay, you can open your eyes again if, you, if you've had them closed. Uh, you don't need to tell me your answers to those things, but let me ask you a, a question really quickly. If you were to look around the room today, how many people do you think had the same picture in their head that you did? Now, um, don't get me wrong, I think there will be quite a lot of overlap between many of us, but I'm also willing to bet that there's going to be a significant amount of difference uh, between the pictures in all of our heads. And we've seen over the past uh, few weeks as we've been looking through 1 Corinthians that, and actually Johnny, Johnny Ivey helpfully drove this point home really well last week, the church in Corinth has a battle on their hands. And this battle uh, wasn't held in kind of like in, in, the, in the realm of weapons or anything like that, but in the realm of ideas and values. Uh, between the value, the value system and the priorities of the world, on one hand, um, those kind of expressed in a love of power and wisdom, and the value system and the priorities of God, on the other hand, which were expressed in the seeming foolishness of the cross. And you could imagine, couldn't you, that uh, this could have played out in any number of ways, but interestingly, and maybe surprisingly for some of us, the sharp end of this kind of value battle, the way it's first seen in the Corinthian church was actually in the church's relationship towards leaders. Uh, some of us might instinctively find that a bit confusing, especially when we look at verse 4. It talks about, you know, quite negatively, it talks about one saying, I follow Paul, and another saying, I follow Apollos. And after all, isn't that exactly what... <laughs> we're meant to do with leaders, like, aren't leaders lead followers, right? And followers follow leaders. Uh, what else are leaders going to lead? Who else will followers follow? Uh, but as we've been making our way through these chapters, I think it's becoming increasingly clear, isn't it, that there's this, this sneaky us versus them attitude that's developing inside the Corinthian church. It's a tribalism that's taken root. And Paul starts here because as far as he is concerned, this sort of thing is incredibly serious. What starts as kind of like maybe cliquey in-groups grows into tribes 
And that tribalism might actually feel like unity, mightn't it? It might feel like we're a small band of people uniting together against the enemy. But actually, when we look at it from the outside, we start to see the opposite of unity. We see division. And we're all, we're, we've already discovered, as we've gone through uh, this letter so far, we're either united in Christ or we are divided by tribe. And one of the main reasons Paul begins this letter with this big warning around unity and division is because he wants to hammer the point home that this sort of us versus them mentality is incredibly dangerous. And the thing, though, that we can often forget about this sort of tribalism is that these tribes tend to unite around a figurehead of some kind. We kind of need this, like, larger-than-life leader or a, a kind of this holier-than-now minister or a maybe, like, a, you know, cooler-than-your-grandma's pastor. pastor. Um, and we might, we might not even think about lots of these people as leaders, per se, or even ourselves as their followers, but these, these figureheads inspire this huge amount of loyalty they have an enormous amount of influence. And what's more, any kind of attack on them becomes an attack on us and an attack on the cause, doesn't it? Uh, let me give you a couple of uh, examples, kind of silly, not so silly examples. Um, I think there's few people who seem to embody the spirit of climate and social activism than this person here. Uh, the now 21-year-old, so she's a lot younger then, uh, the 21-year-old Swedish woman, Greta Thunberg. You know, at the age of 15, she was able to exert more influence uh, to bring about more loyalty and more criticism than I will ever manage to produce. Maybe apart from the criticism, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but maybe to give you a, a, an example from the complete opposite end of the spectrum, um, in the year 1999, uh, there was a Russian newspaper that ran this... Uh, odd little poll in, um, right in the kind of middle pages of the newspaper where they were asking their, their readers which out of a number of fictional characters, uh, kind of fi uh, famous kind of pop cultural um, touch points for Russians, they would want as their president the most. And the winner was this guy. He's, uh, his name was uh, Max Otto von Stierlitz. I'm sure you know him well. Um, he, uh, he was a fictional KGB spy. He embodied masculinity um, and calculated control. And the thing is, though, little did the readers know at the time that this poll was actually commissioned and conducted by a committee who'd been tasked with selecting the next president of Russia. It was no small task for them to find a person who fitted this persona. And so they selected a little-known ex-KGB officer. Uh, you might recognize him uh, by the name of Putin. These figureheads, these leaders, are really the sharp end of an entire movement, an entire way of looking at the world, an entire value system. And actually, just as I imagine would be the case between Greta and uh, Mr. Putin, uh, these value systems are not compatible. And this is, uh, this is certainly the case within the Corinthian church, isn't it? What is wise according to the way of the crucified king the king of the universe, is complete and utter nonsense in the eyes of the world. What is compelling and engaging about leaders in the eyes of the world is considered as utter foolishness according to the way of Christ. You see, according to Paul, 
true wisdom is displayed in the cross of Christ, not in the gifts of our leaders. It's displayed in the cross of Christ, not in the gifts of our leaders. And don't get me wrong here, uh, Paul isn't criticizing the leaders for using their gifts or for having them. I mean, the idea of a gift, after all, is that it's kind of been given to us. Um, It implies that someone has given it to us. And Paul clearly understands in this chapter that whatever work that he or Apollos or anyone else has done, the reason it's effective is because God has made it effective. Now look for a moment at verse 6. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Impressive leaders can be a wonderful gift from God to the church, can't they? But their skills, their gifts, and their influence mustn't be the foundation of their ministry. Leadership, instead, that embodies the wisdom of God must follow in the way of the cross. Leadership, according to God, must be humble leadership for it to have anything to do with the ministry of Jesus. Humble leaders are first and foremost followers of the crucified king. And the church, the people of God, you and me, we are called to seek out humble, cross-shaped, cross-carrying leaders if we're to pursue true wisdom. And I, I reckon, actually, that there might be a danger, as I, after everything I've just said, that quite a lot of you might be tempted at this point to maybe breathe a sigh of relief and to check out a bit uh, for the rest of the sermon. Because after all, it's one for leaders, right? If I don't lead a church, maybe I can just get a bit comfy and you know, tune back in next week and everything will be all right. Well, not so fast, because uh, Paul is not writing here to the leaders of the church in Corinth. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He has every one of us in his sights as he writes his letter. And he is clear that how we relate to our leaders has a massive impact on our personal spiritual lives and on our ministry. Relating wisely to our leaders is going to bear real and lasting fruit in us. Whereas relating foolishly to them is going to it's going to risk causing an enormous and surprising amount of damage to our spiritual health and to the health of others. Uh, Paul gives us at least three reasons why in this passage. Uh, Firstly, it brings about maturity, not infancy. It brings about lasting fruitfulness rather than flash-in-the-pan success. And it brings about true spirituality, not the world's substitute. So uh, let's look for a moment at uh, maturity, not infancy. Uh, Johnny reminded us last week that if we are Christians, we have the mind of Christ. We don't have to get it. We already have it. We've seen that in um, chapter 2, verse 16, the last verse of that chapter. And yet, in the very next sentence, Paul goes on to say, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, Paul, Paul isn't confused here. No, he's actually he's really concerned for the Corinthians, and he's worried that they're squandering this heavenly privilege that uh, Johnny was telling us about last week. That word in verse 1, infants, it's not meant to kind of conjure up pictures of innocent babies and kind of cute toddlers who don't yet have all their ABCs kind of fully down. It's, it's a much more demeaning word than that. 
Uh, the word he uses is actually one we get our English word for nappy from. He's essentially telling them that they're behaving immaturely, that spiritually speaking, they're still in their nappies. And when he compares milk and solid food later, Paul's saying that the church can't stomach the deep things of God. Now, he can't stomach it any more than maybe like my 10-month-old son was able to stomach a, the adult-sized meat and potato pie that my sister fed him on Chris, at Christmas. <laughs> Again, if you're thinking it's cute, it's not. Uh, and if you were in the car immediately afterwards, uh, you, you would know that. Um, I, get, I think, though, often when we read passages like this, uh, where we can assume that this is maybe some kind of intellectual or academic issue, but here, the spiritual babyishness of the church doesn't have anything to do with their brains. Now, according to Paul, it's, it's actually wrapped up in their constant divisions. We can see it in verse 3. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? By tying their allegiance to one human leader over and against another, the Corinthians have shown themselves to be spiritual babies as they adopt the standards and judgments of the world rather than God. And again, these aren't even bad examples of leaders, are they? I mean, Paul, Paul includes himself as an example. But when merely human leaders become figureheads for our cause, when they embody everything that we stand for, not only is it increasingly difficult to see them in any kind of critical light, it also becomes increasingly difficult to see other leaders fairly or graciously. And not only that individual, but that also tends to extend, doesn't it, towards anyone who's in that person's camp, that person's church or kind of church. Now, at the same time, a lot of what I've said so far can apply pretty generally to, to all sorts of uh, leaders or anybody with any kind of celebrity status. But Paul drills really deep here into our relationship with leaders in the church. And we see that in how he kind of shows us the second thing we see, that relating wisely to our leaders brings about lasting fruitfulness, <laughs> not flash-in-the-pan success. You see, Paul continues his point in this really surprising way. He reflects on the relatively minuscule status of church leaders, or at least when compared with God. And this, I think this should be surprising to us. It's, it's quite surprising to me. If, if anybody asks me the question, who is Paul? I've, I've, got, I've got some ready answers. Like He's only like the heaviest hitter in the Bible or one of the, kind of the most influential shapers of you know, world history and, and, the, and the Western thought or maybe the most effective church planter that history's ever known. But as Johnny reminded us uh, a few weeks ago, Apollos himself had this enormous teaching ministry that was world famous at a time when it took literally months to travel anywhere. And Paul's answer to the question, what is Apollos? What is Paul? It's, it's wild. He says, only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. What is Paul? Apollos? What is Paul? Nothing. Not in the grand scheme of things. 
I, do we think for a moment that like, God breathed this massive sigh of relief when Paul became a Christian? It's like, oh, thank goodness for that. And I don't know what I was going to do with, <laughs> without Paul. Of course not. And Paul knew that. Paul knew the truth. God didn't need him in order to accomplish anything. Anything that God has done through Paul has been an act of sheer kindness on God's part, not just to the world, but to Paul. And this is a really helpful and encouraging reminder for me this morning as I, as I come and preach. I am not God's gift to the, great, to the gate church. If anything I say this morning has any lasting effect, this is as much God's gift to me as it is to you. Uh, the word that Paul uses in verse 5, servants, is, is used as the kind of servants that wait on tables. Uh, and waiters, uh, are, they have an honorable and a difficult job. You know, they spend a long, a long time on their feet. They don't get paid very much money. And they have to deal with us and our, kind of, our most entitled. And they've got to pretend, you know, that they, they appreciate our constructive criticism. But it would be frankly ridiculous, wouldn't it, if, like, after a really lovely meal, you stopped the waiter and said, you need to quit your job right now because I am hiring you as the head chef for my new restaurant. But in the same way, both Paul and Apollos, as well as any of those entrusted with leadership in the church, they have a significant and an important job to do. They are co-workers in the project that God is undertaking. They have great honor, but ultimately, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Only God who makes things grow. God is behind the fruitfulness of his church, not his servants. But not only is God the one who is truly responsible for the fruitfulness of the church, he's also the one that the church is built on. Uh, Paul shifts uh, kind of imagery here from this agricultural farm setting to, to a building site. And, and in this picture, Paul is kind of like the site manager. He's, you know, he's the one who listens to the architects and, uh, and to maybe the customers, and he shapes some of the direction of the project. By God's grace, he tells us he laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. And this is God's intention. You know, that there's no competition between, uh, between the workers here. They each have their job. Each are important. But each one should build with care. All rights. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, we've heard already the story of that uh, successful pastor who wasn't getting his way and asked, the, and asked um, his uh, opponent in the argument, whose church do you think this is? Whose church do you think this is? And Paul wouldn't take even a second to answer that question. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, Jesus Christ. The church is built on the foundation of Jesus, but we also have to take great care to continue that building project using the same stuff that it was started with, i.e. Jesus. Uh, when Elle and I got married, uh, I inherited this IKEA desk of hers, uh, and it was getting on in years a bit, but it was still kind of functional. It was a bit bendy in the middle and stuff. But you know, over time, as it got older and as we moved house a bit, uh, we decided to get rid of it and, and move in for something a bit more sturdy. And so while we were waiting to kind of get it to the dump, we just stuck it in the back garden and forgot about it. And when we finally got around to getting rid of it, it had rained quite a bit, 
and the whole thing was just effectively dissolving. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I was able to pull this thing apart with my bare hands, like me, right? Uh, <laughs> and when I saw why, when I saw inside, I, I could see why. Like, I was expecting to see, like, you know, a cheap chipboard or something like that, but no, it was like thin plastic veneer on the outside, and then underneath that, there were these, like, chopped up toilet roll tubes that had been nestled together. Uh, and it kind of worked up until the water got in and the whole thing just turned to mush. Um, you know, it worked all right, but a little exposure to the elements and it's ruined. And the thing is though, for those of us who are set aside for some kind of ministry, or maybe for those of us who might be considering it in the future, it can be really tempting to construct our ministry as if it's a bit like an Ikea ministry. Something that will look good uh, immediately. Maybe it's splashy, it's full of impressive uh, gifts on the surface, but ultimately cardboard on the inside. And it's tempting for many reasons, but I think one of these, I think this, this is something for the church to pay attention to, is that it's, it's, it, often these are the things that people want. These are the things that people expect to see. Let me, let me put it this way. Where are the areas you're going to notice when a leader or a pastor drops the ball? What are, you, what are you looking out for in your pastors? Is it how polished their sermon seems? Or is it how seriously they take their prayer life? Will we notice first that attendance at the Gate Church is increasing? Or that the gentleness of your leaders is increasing? And Paul, he labors this point because he wants to see ministry that will last, even through the fire. And he writes from verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Tempting as it might be to build a ministry on the foundation of gifting and skill and personality, it will not last. If we want to see lasting fruitfulness, we don't want IKEA ministries. We have to build on the foundation of Christ with Christ-centered ministry. And remember, even though this is about church leaders, it's still addressed to the whole church. Paul's assumption here is that I think like, the church is appointing, yes, but also, in, in many ways, responsible for their leaders. And can I say, I think that one of the ways that this might apply to us today here at the Gate Church is that membership at the Gate Church really matters. In fact, to put it even more practically, family business meetings at the Gate Church really matter. I wonder if there might be a temptation for many of us to see them as something of a formality, maybe. A bit like a kind of pantomime rubber stamping exercise where like this kind of secret select few people get to set budgets or appoint leaders or mission partners or whatever. The rest of us are here to kind of get with that program and vote when, uh, where we're told, when we're told. But the reality is far bigger than that. This is the church expressing her high calling and high responsibility. And to be frank, we've, we've always had a bit of a struggle, haven't we? 
Uh, sometimes they even have enough people at our family business meetings to, to make that bare minimum number of people that we need to run them. And while I think there's often very good reasons for many of us why we can't be at, at certain ones, and I'm not, I'm not here to kind of, as a stick to beat you with to get to you to family business meetings, I do wonder if one of the reasons that we struggle with that, and that bigger picture struggle, is actually we don't have quite the grand view of what it means to be a member of a church than is addressed here in this passage. But it does also cut both ways. And while we're on the subject of appointing leaders, I think it's worth saying that while your pastors, your elders are Johnny, Johnny and Toby, um, both myself and George are candidate elders here. And that means that while we're always meant to act in a quite a transparent manner, this is an opportunity for the church to look hard at us and at our lives. I think it can be easy, can't it, to, to examine the giftedness of a candidate. And like I said, it's not to, not to kind of throw gifts under the bus, but the Bible is clear that our characters really matter. Mine and George's characters really matter. And I want to re-invite you this morning to consider our characters. If you don't feel like you know us, please do come and say hello. Uh, please ask uh, any of the questions that you might have been hoping would come up by somebody else at some point, because they probably won't, if not you, <laughs> then who? And if you do have concerns, Johnny, Johnny, Toby, they would love to hear about them. They, they, it would be really important for you to feel safe uh, to approach them with them. And I would love to invite you again today to embrace that high calling, that high expectation for leaders. So, um, yeah, sorry, not sorry, George. <laughs> um, but speaking of uh, high callings, one of the maybe the strangest things about this passage is the short shrift that Paul gives to the leaders of the churches, the ones he describes as servants and as nothing, especially when we compare it with the huge weight that he gives to the church. I mean, Paul's list of building materials um, the, the stuff that, um, that, that, that you know, this building is made of in verse 12, I don't think it sounds like anything you'd find lying around a construction site, uh, does it? But what Paul is doing here is he is teeing up what is this huge vision for what the church is. According to Paul, we are God's temple. And when we hear the Bible tell us that we're God's temple, I think it can be tempting for us to think of that as individuals. Um, you know, people who treat their bodies as temples are people who, can, you know, they place great value on them and they, they take great care of them. But Paul isn't referring to individuals here. He's referring again to the church. And what's, what's wild is, you know, while leaders who build their ministries and, and, and their, their kind of their, their, their careers on skill set, and gifting, instead of the foolishness of the cross, they risk suffering loss. We can see that in verses 14 and 15. If anyone causes harm to God's sacred temple, to God's church, they risk facing God's judgment. We can see it in um, Paul's warning in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. And, you know, this warning should, it really should stop us in our tracks, shouldn't it? It should arrest us. It's, it's sobering. 
the seemingly insignificant squabbles that come from choosing one group and one leader over and against another group and another leader, these are quite literally deadly serious, according to the Bible. And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, I've not heard anyone lining up, you know, behind, you know, Team Toby or Team, Team Richards or whatever. We should still be taking unity in the church as seriously as Paul does here. And I think for us, that looks like taking seriously the values and the priorities of the cross when it comes to our leaders. Any other human value system is going to lead us to elevate human leaders above Christ and to push us towards tribalism and division. The tragic irony, though, of this passage is that by lifting up the human leaders, the Corinthians are pushing the church down. They're pushing themselves down. They're leaving themselves as less than they could have been otherwise. And I think this is why Paul addresses the Corinthians in verses 1 to 4 as not only infantile, not only immature, but also, because of their tribalism, they're worldly. That same word is actually is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the flesh. Um, he accuses them, quite literally, of acting like people of the flesh rather than people of the spirit. And when the Bible uses the word flesh, I mean, I don't know about you, I often associate it with the kind of sins that you might not, um, you might not talk about in front of children or something. But the shock of this passage is that Paul is, is, is calling out the attaching of loyalty to human leaders based on the standards of the world. That is what it looks like to live according to the flesh. Once again, the Corinthians have lowered themselves in their attempt to raise up individual leaders or figureheads. And instead, if they, if they just united themselves around Jesus, they would have found their identity wrapped up in his. They would have had a far greater identity than their gifts could have ever hoped to provide them with. In verse 3, Paul accuses them of acting like mere humans. And that, that kind of implies, doesn't it, that they could have been something more. You know, they could have had a far greater identity than that. They could have been the church. They could have been the bride of Christ, the one Jesus died for, the one he valued with his own life. Instead, they settled for mere humans. And for Paul, this is the source of true wisdom. It is to find our identity as the gathered dwelling place of God. If we want to pursue wisdom, we need to place our confidence in, in the crucified Christ. We need to trust just as Paul reminds us in verse 21, all things are ours in Christ. And so we don't need to scrabble around for scraps in human leaders. And when we focus on charismatic personalities or results at any cost, we're setting our sights not too high, but too low. Why boast in human leaders, Paul asks, when all things are yours? If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise, Paul writes. The wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. And I don't think this means we need to drop our expectations of leaders. If anything, it should raise them. We, we, we should have the expectation that our leaders will follow their crucified king. They will follow him in the way of the cross. And that means we've got to have a category in our minds, don't we, for weak leaders. Leaders who shoulder burdens for others. 
leaders who deal gently with the weakest, who grieve their own sin and crucify it daily. This is the source of the only kind of unity that we should be fighting for. And to be honest, I think it's incredibly understandable, isn't it, why many Christians, including perhaps some of us, might feel a little bit suspicious of calls for unity and warnings against division in the church. After all, there's been so much abuse of that, hasn't there? Often in order to maybe sidestep criticism or something like that. But those, those uh, abuses always substitute the crucified Christ for someone else, for something else. A call to gospel unity is a call to unity around the person and the ministry of Jesus. It calls us to faithfulness to him. Even, even if we're left looking stupid and foolish in the eyes of the world. Because we're assured that this will look glorious in the light of eternity. And it will be a fight to maintain that unity. It's going to be a battle for each and every one of us. But as I, as I finish, I, wanna, I just want to share with you a vision of the future that I think is going to help us as we keep fighting for unity right now. You don't have to turn to it, um, but in, um, in the last book of the Bible, in the, in the second, la- second to last chapter, so it's Revelation chapter 21, if you want to check it out later, um, we can see these two incredible things that are going to help us keep going in our fight for unity. So firstly, at the return of Jesus, there will be no physical temple. It'd be useless, wouldn't it? Because God himself is going to be there to dwell with his people. No one who was saved by God is going to be shut out from his presence. But also, at the same time, in the same chapter, the church is described as descending from heaven to live and rule forever with Jesus. And how is the church described? She's described as a bride, as a great city. But the city is made of precious stones like pearl and sapphire, emerald, rubies of gold, as pure as if it were pure glass. The list just goes on and on. And it's the same imagery that Paul has taken up in in our chapter, but it's just exploded, isn't it, into this kind of unimaginable proportions in eternity. The churches that look weak this morning will dazzle in eternity. The place where, where people caught, you know, caught maybe just a glimpse of the glory of God, it's going to be the setting of the final scene of the love story between God and his people. And so this chapter that uh, Paul has given us, uh, it's not really about leadership, is it? It's about the church. And it's because if we get our identity right, all things are ours. If we throw our lot in with you know, slick gifts and impressive personalities, that is all we will be left with. But if we throw our lot in with Christ, crucified, if we commit to follow those who follow in the way of the cross, we will find ourselves on a road that leads to dazzling and eternal glory. I'm going to pray for us before we sing in response. Father, thank you so much that um, as we maybe feel weak this morning, as we maybe do not uh, see uh, with our eyes uh, the, uh, the enormous identity and, and privilege that has been credited to us as the church, 
that with the eyes of faith we can we can place um, we can we can place our confidence in that reality. We are we have been given something great. We have been um, brought into something beautiful, and something that will last. Father, do not allow us at the Gate Church to to settle for less uh, than than Jesus and leaders who who follow in His way. Uh, do not allow us uh, this morning to unite around anything other than him. And so we pray as we sing and as we carry on this, uh, this, this morning together that we would again unite ourselves in, uh, in him and in his way of the cross. Amen.